Yes, I must apologise for bringing you here under false pretenses when you see the title. At least you can read the title at the back, can you? Yeah, Unfortunately, we're talking about solar geometry here. We don't want the sun to shine, actually. We want the sun to go away. It should be overcast, and then the screen will be more vibrant. But anyway, so actually, I'm going to do... The, the first half of the talk is going to be about related to the Haywain. And the second half of the talk is going to be related to Salisbury. So perhaps I have brought some of you here under false pretenses, but we'll find out. But I think the, the important part of this is in terms of finding out new things about Constable. You'd think after all this time, that everything that there is to know about Constable would have been discovered. Uh, but really, the, what we can see today is that there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still lots of new avenues that we can pursue to find out more. So there's, every time you ask a question, there are more... Sorry, every time you look for an answer, there are more questions than answers, as we'll see, hopefully. So I'm actually based at the University of Birmingham, but I'm retired as, a, as an actual uh, academic now. Right? I work for an organisation called Public Health England, which some of you may, may have heard of, two days a week. So I'm just part-time, which is quite nice. So I can still got time to do these sort of talks as well. But uh, one of the, the areas that I'm working on, really, th this is to some extent my hobby rather than necessarily my main area of work because I'm actually a meteorologist, as Sarah mentioned. And I'm doing two projects at the moment. Whoops. <laughs> and uh, one of the projects, whoops. Keep that sun out. Yeah, definitely. One of the projects that we've just published some important work on is that we're looking at the air quality, air pollution now is a big thing in, in New Street Station. Have any of you been to Birmingham New Street Station? The air quality is terrible, yeah, as we've proved now. So that's one of the things we're working on. And the other thing I work on is, is ambulances as well, trying to look at the impact of climate change and air pollution as well, to some extent, on ambulance performance. So we're still uh, in the sort of weather and climate area. So my work on Constable, and yesterday I was in London doing a film for the National Gallery on the new Monet exhibition that's about to open, called Monet and Architecture. So I was doing my solar geometry again, but looking at the Houses of Parliament and the sun setting over the Houses of Parliament. And rather annoyingly, the sun went behind a big cloud just as we were filming and then came out just after we finished filming, needless to say. <laughs> but anyway, it doesn't, doesn't really, whoops, it doesn't really matter. But what, today what I want to do is to give you the background in terms of how learning a little bit about the weather and uh, meteorology to some extent can help us to understand Constable's paintings better. And obviously the Haywain is, is a typical example. Now, I remember the, the first paper I wrote on Constable um, I got a bit into trouble because I actually said that Constable had altered the sky of the Haywain after it had been originally uh, exhibited. And the art historians were up in arms about this, what, what evidence had I got? And of course my evidence was purely from looking at the sky uh, as opposed to actually Constable never wrote down, I altered the sky. Uh, <laughs> but we know quite well that, uh, that Constable did rework a lot of his paintings, just as Monet reworked all his paintings too. But Constable did rework a lot of the skies in his paintings because he, he, he was his own worst critic really for the, for the skies, as, as we'll see. But anyway, let's crack on. And uh, I published a book which again uh, relates to the sky. So John Constable's Skies came out nearly 20 years ago now, 1999. So this was the, the first detailed analysis of skies in all of Constable's paintings from start to finish. And one of the things that became apparent very quickly to me was that there's what we call the skying period of Constable's work, which was between 1820 
1822, which is exactly the 1821, of course, is the date for the Hayway. And Constable was so worried about the sky in, in the Hayway that he undertook this period of skying where he produced over a hundred paintings from Hampstead Heath of just skies, where skies were the, were the main contributors, we'll see. And, and obviously that had a big, a big impact, so that before the Hayway, this Constable's skies are pretty dull, and we'll see a couple of examples of that. Then after the Hayway, and it's really after that skying period, Constable's skies became very real, real and natural. And as a meteorologist, I can identify with, with those skies and actually recognise them. Whereas before the Hayway and before 1821, the skies are pretty bland, as we'll see. I'm sure you all know who that is. <laughs> and the other thing I want to talk about, obviously being a scientist myself, is Constable as a scientist rather than as an artist. Now back in those days, at the beginning of the 19th century, of course, there wasn't such a distinction between being an artist and a scientist. The, the actual term of a, of a scientist hadn't really come into, into vogue at that time. But Constable explained, uh, uh, all Constable's whatever he did, particularly with his skying period, does duplicate the idea of him being a very rigorous empiricist in terms of taking careful observations, multiple observations, and then interpreting that to actually understand how the sky works, and particularly how the lighting of the landscape is controlled by the sky, as we'll see. And he wrote this famous statement, we see nothing truly till we understand it. Now he wasn't talking about the sky at the time, he was talking about the tides. But in terms of the actual sky, this is very true too, that we see nothing truly till we understand it. So for example, a cloud or a rainbow, um, we don't actually see it properly until we actually understand how it's formed. And that's a very scientific observation. And he actually said himself in his lectures later in life that painting is a science and should be pursued as an inquiry into the laws of nature. So Constable recognised this, uh, the importance, and again, of understanding features, phenomena, before you actually paint them, to get the best out of them. And he says, why then may not landscape painting be considered as a branch of natural philosophy? And natural philosophy is what science was really more generally known as in those days, of which pictures are just the experiments. So these cloud studies that he did, which he, ne he didn't, never exhibited them, he did them uh, to actually to become more of an expert in what the sky actually looked like uh, above the particular landscapes he was interested in. So, let's then undertake a scientific analysis of Constable's skies, as opposed to an artistic one, and see where we get. Well, obviously one of the most famous uh, sky, complete skyscape, was this painting, which on the back Constable wrote the word Cirrus. Now, Cirrus, you're probably aware of the fact, is one of the Latin cloud names. Do you know who invented Latin cloud names? No? You should know, right. Well, it was the father of clouds, Luke Howard, who was a Quaker who lived in, uh, in Stratford, actually, for much of his life in London. And uh, he was the guy who came up. Now, he, he said he learned more Latin at school than he knew what to do with and wasn't interested in the actual mathematics or anything like that. And he used to gaze out of the window when the, his, his teacher was telling him more Latin. And he used to associate some of the Latin that he learned with the cloud shapes that he could see outside the school window. And he came, he was a member of a society and you had to give a talk. Every year, each member of the society had to give a talk or pay a fine. 
and he couldn't think of anything to give a talk on. So he decided, why not come up with these Latin cloud names and present that to the society to avoid paying the fine. And it was such a success that it was immediately, the member of the same society was actually uh, uh, the uh, philosophical magazine editor and he approached him to then publish this and that became uh, established. And also associated, he, he did a whole number of sketches himself of clouds, which are not very inspiring. They're in the Science Museum at the moment. And this is one that it, one cloud type that uh, called Cumulostratus, which we no longer use. So not all his have been accepted, but most of what he suggested has been accepted. And now we have Cirrus, Cirrocumulus, Cirrostratus. There are 10 main cloud groups. Most of them are used. Uh, he had this cumulostratus, which is no longer used, but cumulus, stratus, nimbus. And then these later ones, stratocumulus, altocumulus, altostratus, cumulonimbus, were named by other scientists after Luke Howard. But the basic core was produced by Luke Howard. And because he produced this cloud classification in Latin, it was recognised by scientists throughout the world. Because Latin was the sort of Esperanto, as we would say, of, of languages for scientists at that time. There was an equally, around about the same time, uh, the, scientist, the famous French scientist Lamarck came up with his classification, which was based in French, which was based on the shape of French vegetables. <laughs> and it never actually caught on anywhere <laughs> in France. So Luke Howard uh, went, went viral, uh, as they would say today. <laughs> so these are some of the characters we're going to be talking about today, apart from just John Constable. Obviously, he was a contemporary with Turner, and Luke Howard, we were mentioning, was very much a contemporary, although he lived quite a lot longer than Constable. There's also the Beaufort scale. Remember the Beaufort wind scale? He was around more or less at the same time. His wife, Maria. His best friend, John Fisher, that we'll be talking about later. Thomas Forster, who was uh, a scientist who produced a meteorological textbook, which Constable annotated. And that was really good to get the information out of what Constable, un he underlined and said certain things were wrong. So Constable knew as much meteorology as, as the contemporary scientist at the time. And then my, one of my favourites, John Ruskin, of course, is quite a character who, for some reason, despised Constable and obviously yes. lo loved Turner. And I'm not quite sure why, but that's probably because he didn't see things like Constable's cloud studies, which, which Ruskin would have appreciated. Constable never showed them. They were all kept locked away in his, in his study somewhere. So... But it's quite interesting to see, and we'll see an image in a minute of what Ruskin was, because Ruskin was very much into skies as well, as we'll see. Now, what is it about a sky? This is a sky near Malvern, where I come from, in, in well, where I live now. I come from Yorkshire originally, you can probably tell from my accent. I live near Malvern now. And here's a typical sky. If you wanted to paint a sky like that, what are the different factors that you would need to take into account? And what is it that Constable... Uh, did that made his sky so much more realistic and naturalistic than anyone else's probably before or since. So what I tried to do in my book was to break down the different elements of the sky uh, to see how well different artists have produced different elements. And obviously some simple things that you can see straight away from this is that the sky isn't just blue. The sky, the, the variety of blue. So you can see how this, the blueness gets much lighter as you get towards the horizon and gets darker. And the darkest blue is actually at right angles from the sun into the sky. The other great thing that Constable realised pretty well straight away from his skying period was that the darkest parts of the sky, the clouds in particular, are overhead. 
and then it gets lighter as you see the side of the clouds as you go with distance whereas the clouds overhead are darker and this is one of the things that we notice in constable's paintings that he picked this up and a lot of other artists don't realize that they sort of paint the clouds all the same color so the cloud perspective is important too. see how the, how the actual clouds get smaller obviously with distance and so on and so on so we can break it down into a number of different elements so the sky how blue is the sky an artist realized that there, there was a complication here and there was an instrument called a cyanometer which was developed by scientists as well as by artists to actually measure the blueness of the sky to have a sort of blue scale from dark blue to to virtually white and this was used by scientists to estimate the amount of humidity in the air because the more water vapor there is in the air the whiter the sky so you could use it as a sort of measure of how humid the air was before they had a decent instrument but also uh, artists would use this in order to take to have numbers equivalent to certain blue colors so that when they get back into the studio they could reproduce the actual colors of blue that they particularly wanted so looking at the, how the artist approaches the, the blueness of the sky is quite interesting do you know where the sky is bluest in the world there was a fantastic expedition recently that went around the world, a great excuse, measuring the blueness of the sky. <laughs> and they found the blue skies were actually in Brazil. So it's closest to the equator. And as you're closer to the equator, they get blue. And as you go further towards the poles, they get whiter. Uh, so go to Brazil. <laughs> now, how do you paint the atmosphere? Now, this is why I first got interested probably in, in this, from a meteorological point of view is that the atmosphere is pretty much invisible most of the time. And when you're trying to persuade students to understand things like saturated vapour pressures and Coriolis forces and so on, if you've got an invisible atmosphere, it's difficult for them to imagine what's going on. So we want to be able to see the atmosphere and what's in the atmosphere. And obviously, things that are important to artists are the aerial perspective, which is very important. And how do you paint wind? Well, obviously, you have to paint wind indirectly. And if you've got... A boat at sea then that's fantastic because the sails can be uh, easily painted to show the wind or if you've got smoke like in the Haywain we can actually see the smoke from Willylock's cottage which gives us some indication as to the atmosphere is actually there and obviously air pollution as well is something that's very important and obviously this is looking at Monet's London series he was painting the atmosphere he wasn't painting anything else but the atmosphere itself or envelope as, as he called it and fantastic colours of air pollution and so on. But Constable wasn't really interested in air pollution. Turner was, and Monet was much later, but, uh, but really Constable uh, was interested in painting the wind. And if we look at Constable's paintings, they get windier as time goes by. His early, his early paintings are very still. And as you go through, we get stormier and stormier, as we'll see later on. And then painting clouds themselves in terms of trying to recognize the cloud types. Obviously, Constable learned Luke Howard's cloud classification. He was aware of it, as we saw he wrote the word cirrus. So he actually studied it. As he said, we see nothing truly to understand it. So he actually studied Luke Howard's cloud classification, which helped him then to, to relate to the clouds. Obviously, cumulus clouds are probably his famous favorite clouds, as well as cirrus. But then uh, he also was very much into dew formation and he loved to paint the sparkling dew on the ground as well. And cloud perspective was something that Constable picked up fairly, fairly well. So that the clouds actually look real in the sky, whereas a lot of artists uh, can't get the perspective right. Now, what about light? Obviously, the, the, the clouds in the sky control the lighting of the atmosphere and the position of the sun in the sky in relation to the clouds. 
So things like rainbows, shadows, chiaroscuro, as Constable would have called it in terms of the shade, shading of, of, uh, of the landscape, etc., is very important. So we have to take that into account. Where is the sun theoretically in the sky at the time you're painting your landscape? And obviously it's going to move. So the sun moves uh, and therefore obviously that complicates matters a little bit. And then finally the climate itself. What time of year is the, is the, is the painting actually trying to represent? And we'll see some confusion in, in the art critics' minds later on when we, when we look at this, trying to identify the climate in Constable's paintings. Because there's the famous Constable Snow. Are you all familiar with Constable Snow? Constable used to have these dashes of white on his paintings to try and represent light coming through the trees, for example. And, and the critics used to call it Constable Snow. <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't real snow at all, but they loved to call it snow. So, we can then, whenever we look at a landscape, we can then sort of say, well, what... Which part of the sky is the, is, the, uh, is the artist interested in? It may be none of these. The artist may not be interested in the sky at all. The landscape may be all landscape. But then you've still got the lighting of the landscape to consider, even if you can't see the sky. And also, um, you can judge different artists who are interested in different elements. So Monet was very much into the atmosphere in the London series. Obviously, Constable was much more into clouds and weather and, uh, and rainbows, as we'll, as we'll see later on. So different artists have got different themes that they're interested in. But obviously we don't want to make life too complicated. And uh, I gave a talk to an art society in Hagley, which is in, near Birmingham, uh, a few years ago, and uh, went through this scheme. And then the following year they invited me back to open their annual exhibition. So I was hoping to see lots of skies, uh, having enthused them all to put, go out there and paint skies. And there was none to be seen, hardly, hardly anything there at all. And they said, oh, you made it too complicated. Yeah, we, we, were, we tried to put us off doing what we were doing before, and uh, we thought you'd be too critical, you know, and all this sort of other. So it does work both ways. But anyway, here's an example of a, of a cyanometer. There's a famous Swiss scientist, Sasseur, who developed this cyanometer, which is still uh, in, a, in a museum in Switzerland. And you can see from the sort of white through to almost black, there's a scale, a numbered scale on here. And so you could actually hold that up against the sky and turn it round with the sun, <laughs> sun behind you and note down the number that, uh, of the colours of the sky in different parts of the, of the actual sky. And this is a modern uh, postcard. You, so people are still interested in, uh, whoops, <laughs> in, uh, in producing similar, similar sorts of things. It's all right. Whoops. <laughs> You want to leave the room? Is it the police? No, no. <laughs> Anybody recognise this diagram? This is John Ruskin, actually, in Modern Painters. Actually, he came up with a number of diagrams as to how the cloud perspective. And uh, he was... Later on in, in the 19th century, when he actually produced uh, some elements on skies, he took these pictures out of the of the actual uh, modern painter's version because he said nobody was interested in them at all. So he'd never seen anybody pay any attention so why bother to reproduce them in later issues? So, but, but really they are unique. I've never seen anybody else trying to produce anything like this in terms of trying to uh, get the idea for the cloud bases and the cloud perspectives. But that's another story. So I was saying earlier, Constable's early skies, I know it's, uh, it's a bit faint on here, but 
We've recently been doing quite a lot of work on volcanic eruptions and how these are uh, using Constable and Turner paintings to actually represent the reddening of the sky. And that's certainly true. Constable, in, in, this, this, uh, in the times close to volcanic eruptions, you get this colourful sky. But on the other hand, it's very much a sort of, uh, not a particularly interesting sky. The, the colours are not interesting. Perhaps the most interesting sky before the Hayway was in 1816, uh, Weymouth Bay, where we had a sort of fantastic looking sky here. And this, this was the year without a summer because we had the big volcanic eruption uh, in Tambora in 1815. And, sorry, in, in Indonesia. Yeah, and nobody knew at the time that it was a volcanic eruption thousands of miles away. It wasn't until the 1890s that, that scientists finally decided that uh, the volcanic eruptions, the particles, get up into the stratosphere and they get carried around the whole world. And this caused the year without a summer. Obviously, people, it was fantastic. Uh, there were uh, right across Europe and North America and probably the rest of the world as well. Uh, the sun was being, sunlight was being reflected back into space and we had these awful uh, droughts and uh, really cold summers and, uh, and stormy, stormy skies as well. So this, this is quite, you can use some of Constable's paintings as what we call proxy data to actually see what Constable was painting because he was trying to paint what he actually saw. We can use this as a sort of pictorial weather diary as to what things were like. So this was quite an interesting sky but not really uh, one that we could uh, sort of identify uh, with this. Proxy data. Proxy. Have you come across the word proxy? So it's my Yorkshire accent here. Proxy data. So anyway, Constable obviously had quite an interesting meteorological uh, background that he taught himself quite a bit about meteorology. And this relates back to his, partly his training as a windmiller, obviously in this locale here. Uh, he had to learn about the, uh, particularly the, the, the sort of changing wind direction and changing wind force in terms of having to shut windmills down in storms and so on. Then, of course, when he lived in, in London on Hampstead Heath, there's a fantastic atmospheric laboratory. You could climb up and see the sky. There's lots of information in Constable's letters. He was a prolific letter writer, so we have lots of times he talked about the sky. So we can look at that, we can examine that evidence. So there's all this in evidence. The actual inscriptions on his cloud studies, which we'll see some examples of between 1820 and 1822, shows how he was interested in, in the weather before a particular sky and the weather after as well. And the annotations in this textbook by Thomas Forster uh, gives us a lot of uh, indication how to show how good his meteorological knowledge was. And also his enigmatic rainbows that, uh, as we'll see, he painted real rainbows, but he also painted fake rainbows, as we'll see. And he wrote quite a bit about uh, the weather in, in his uh, book, English Landscape Scenery, which sold about five copies, unfortunately, which made him very miserable. <laughs> It was a great shame, but uh, they still survive today. There are more readers today than there was in his own time, I'm afraid. Now, this turning point, which is after the Hayway, and obviously was, was in early in 1821, but he wrote this letter to, uh, uh, to his best friend, John Fisher, who was based at Salisbury in, uh, on the 23rd of October, 1821. And this famous letter relates to Constable's interest in the sky. And he actually said, 
And we've, got, we've got a copy of the original letter here. It's owned by a, a rich Canadian called David Thompson, who's got the original letter. So I've actually seen the original and transcribed it in, in my book. And you'll notice it's quite interesting because he spells sky with an E uh, a lot of the time. And because he had some relatives that were called Sky with an E, so perhaps he was doing this as a trick, I'm not quite sure. But I have often been advised to consider my sky as a white sheet drawn behind the objects. And this is partly, again, criticism of the Haywain uh, and other paintings, that it's had a real sky uh, as opposed to a backcloth, like in a theatre where you just have a backcloth uh, of a sky. And obviously he said that this did, did not appeal to him whatsoever, he wanted a real sky. And also he noted that the sky is the keynote, the standard of scale, and the chief organ of sentiment. So that's a famous statement there in terms of what does he mean by this. Obviously in terms of the sky, you have to start with the sky and then transforms into the, into the atmosphere. And obviously the actual uh, lighting, etc., is so importantly controlled by the sky. But then, this, this is rather interesting, but these remarks do not apply to accidental effects of sky. So this was his excuse for introducing a rainbow when he wanted to, <laughs> even though meteorologically impossible. But he very rarely introduced clouds that were meteorologically impossible or anything like that, but certainly uh, he said he regarded a rainbow as an accidental effect of sky, that it doesn't occur very often, I suppose. And similarly with uh, what we call crepuscular rays. Are you familiar with crepuscular rays? Stairway to Heaven, you know, Jacob's Ladder type thing when the sun shows. He'll introduce some of those as we'll see later on as well. And so we come to the Haywain. Now, by the time Constable painted the Haywain, it was before his Skyne period. Well, his Skyne period just started in 1820. He produced a few cloud studies, but not very many. And so his, his skies in the Haywain, though, is fantastic. You can see the dark underbelly of the, of the clouds here, as we were talking about earlier, and then the way that the perspective. And so you can see that this is a sort of unstable airstream. We, we, I'm afraid you just about see the smoke coming out of the chimney there. We've got a southwesterly airstream, which is very typical in, uh, in this part of the world. And uh, the clouds are building up during the summer's, summer's day or late summer's day. Obviously, they're going to collect the harvest. And there's probably have some showers in the afternoon. So, I mean, the sky is so natural that you can actually make a weather forecast from it quite easily. So a wonderful sky in, in the Hayway. But his sky, all his, the big number of over 100 skies that he painted uh, were after this was first exhibited. So I'm quite convinced that the original sky probably wasn't as good as this and that Constable kept working on it at later times. <laughs> Although I, I say I haven't got any evidence, it's just a supposition. But art historians often make statements without evidence, so I can do that. But as a scientist, I'm not supposed to. And then his actual sky in period, he produced these wonderful images from uh, on, in Hampstead. And what I did for, uh, is to compare the meteorological diaries of uh, scientists working in London with Constable's paintings. And, uh, because Constable actually annotated, there were over 50 of these sky studies that he annotated. And some of them are quite hell, uh, long annotations. So September the 10th, 1821, noon, gentle wind at west, very sultry after a heavy shower with thunder, accumulated thunderclouds passing slowly away to the southeast, very bright and hot, and all the foliage sparkling with the wet. So that relates to that. 
So you can see the sort of thundery uh, mood of the sky there. So if we look at what the uh, Luke Howard, who was a contemporary obviously of Constable, kept the weather diary in Stratford, said Howard stated some thunder around noon and heavy showers. So I looked at five different uh, meteorologists at the time and all the other weather data agrees that Constable actually was giving us an exact impression as to what was going on on that day at that time. And therefore we can work backwards. He doesn't always give the complete date. Sometimes he only gives the, the month and the day. He doesn't give you the year. Sometimes he only gives you uh, uh, the month and, and, and neither the, the date nor the year. But we, we can actually... There are 54 weather inscriptions that have survived from these, even though there were probably over 100 in, in reality in, in total. And one or two are still being discovered. Uh, some were recently discovered in Paris in the, on the market there. So they're still out there somewhere. And it's possible to use the weather evidence to date 15 of these studies where there's an incomplete date. So it's a very, uh, very exact. Here's another one. Now this one, he only gave 27th of September. So was it 1821 or 1822? So we can easily look at the weather data and confirm that uh, in 1821, Howard said the wind was northwest. Here we have uh, wind west. Belleville, west-southwest, Crow, southwest, Hoy, northwest, all westerly winds. Whereas in 1822, they all had northerly and easterly winds. So it's pretty clear it's 1821. Then. And it turns out that he painted other, other things. There were two other studies on that day in 1821, so he's obviously out in the field uh, painting. So that's very simple. And here's another lovely skyscape. This is... They did a lot of these pure skyscapes, just the sky, no vestige of vegetation whatsoever. Uh, wonderful skies. And again, it all corresponds very nicely and uh, with Constable's inscription. So a beautiful pictorial weather diary of, of what the weather was like. And we can examine this in, in great detail. Of the 54 sky studies, 19 are pure sky studies. And they date, and they, most of them were painted in September in that time between 1820 and 1822, followed by July, a quarter of them, all hours from sunrise to sunset. So he was interested in what the, the, the sky was like all the way through the day. But the peak time he was most interested in, 12 of the studies were actually at noon. So he was obviously a light noon best, perhaps. And 20 of, of reference to future or past weather. Of 36 that mention wind direction, 28 are westerlies, which is slightly more than the average. Uh, but Beaufort wind speed was mentioned in 23 of the studies. Direction of view for 18 of the studies, uh, and 12 of them are pure, are pure sky studies, where he actually gives the direction of view in terms of which way you're looking, which is important if you're just a pure sky. It's a bit difficult to know which way he's looking. And uh, most of these were painted at right angles to the wind. Uh, because obviously, if the sky is moving across across your field of view, it's much easier if you're painting at right angles to the wind, rather than if you're painting into the wind and the sky is coming overhead. It looks rather strange. And there's a beautiful sky study in, in Oxford in the Ashmolean Museum, which is just like that, where the sky is coming overhead. So we can, uh, we can interpret all that and use what we might call a content analysis to understand all that. So that was the Haywain and the background to the Haywain and the studies up to 1820. Now, 
I want to just talk about this idea of the Salisbury Cathedral from the Meadows. Now, the reason I want to talk about this is that uh, this is a new discovery that's only just come out in the last 12 months. And uh, because the rainbow in this particular painting has always been a puzzle because it doesn't correspond to the actual shadows in, in the picture and it's not the rainbow that the artist would have seen from that particular location uh, if you look at the actual picture itself. So we're trying to unravel um, why Constable would paint uh, a rainbow over Salisbury Cathedral at this time. So if we look at a content analysis of the weather in that painting, we've got the rainbow, the shadows, we've also got lightning and a thunderstorm, we've got crepuscular rays, we've got the clouds, we've got the sky blue, we've got the wind velocity. So everything is going on in this painting. If we just go back to it a minute. I know it's a bit, obviously with the, the colours here, you find it difficult to see there is a, a bolt of lightning actually flashing around the, the spire. And also we have crepuscular rays here coming down. Now crepuscular rays would normally leave you back to where the sun is. Obviously to have such a huge rainbow, uh, then the sun would have to be much lower in the sky. So this rainbow is, is inconsistent with the meteorology. And also you'll see down here there's a post here and the shadow of the post, I know it's very difficult for you to see there, but the shadow, all the shadows are incorrect for that particular rainbow. It is indeed. <laughs> now, rainbow, I don't know if you know the theory of rainbows in terms of, we see nothing truly till we understand it. So you need to understand a little bit about uh, how rainbows are formed. But the primary, the primary bow, it's all to do with the sunlight being uh, re reflected and refracted through the droplets of rain. And then they come out and are then finally seen by the observer. Now the primary bow that we normally see, the maximum angle that we can see is 42 degrees in the sky. Whereas the secondary bow has an angle of about 52 degrees and the colours are reversed in the secondary bow. And there is a tertiary bow and there's a quaternary bow and there's an infinite number of bows actually in reality, but we can't see, we only ever see two bows. And in fact, the third bow is actually towards the sun. So it's not surprising. Some people claim to have seen it, but I don't believe them because it'd be so faint. So the secondary bow is often very faint. So we need to understand that uh, the bow in, in the actual painting is pretty much a 42 degree bow. Uh, so the sun must be setting in order to get uh, the bow so high. Now if you go up in an aeroplane you can see a complete circle of bow. So you're looking down on the rainbow. So this is a, quite an unusual view. And you can sometimes get this on the top of a mountain as well. You can actually see the rainbow, much more of the rainbow. But on a horizontal plane you can only ever see a height of 42 degrees. Now in terms of the, here's uh, Stonehenge of course, in terms of the position of the sun in the sky and the position of rainbows, it's like a clock. The sun is always going to be predictable as to where it's going to be. And it's been the same for thousands of years. So in Stonehenge, the sun still rises over the same uh, uh, altar as it did thousands of years ago. So this, it does, I mean, it does alter slightly, but really, as far as we're concerned, from Constable's time to our time now, the sun will rise and set in the same place. And every minute of every day, we can predict exactly where the sun is going to be. And they have been able to do this for hundreds of years. So in Constable's time, they'd know exactly where the sun was going to be on any particular day. And rainbows are 180 degrees away from the sun, always 180 degrees away from the sun. 
So it's just as you can use the sun as a clock, so you can use a rainbow as a clock. You can actually identify the exact day and time as to where that rainbow would be if it's been painted correctly or photographed correctly. So this particular rainbow, we can actually date it, you can use it as like a clock uh, to actually say when that rainbow, what does it represent and how does that relate to the actual image, as we'll see. Now, let's just have a look at that rainbow. I've mentioned the shadow on the post. So if this was the rainbow that Constable would have seen from that spot, the shadow would point towards the centre of the rainbow. So the sun has to be behind you. When you're looking at a rainbow, the sun has to be behind you. So the shadows point inwards to the centre of the rainbow. And the shadow on, on the painting is obviously over at an angle, which is difficult to see. So this is the rainbow that someone standing in the meadows to the right of the cathedral would have seen, which is artistic license indeed, if that's the case. But as we'll confirm, Constable actually added the rainbow later on in life as a final symbolic gesture to the death of his friend, John Fisher, without regard to the rest of the sky. So he actually introduced this rainbow to represent the day that his friend, John Fisher, died, as we'll see. Can we back this up with some evidence indeed? So the shadow of the post is more than twice the height of the post. So if we work out from the actual shadows on the cathedral and the shadows on the post, this would give a rainbow of a height of only about 22 degrees. And the cathedral tower is 123 metres tall and it's about 610 metres away from the actual location, which we can easily measure. And therefore the top of the cathedral tends an angle of about 11 degrees. So this would be a date early in August, about 5 p.m. And it would be for someone elsewhere, somebody else. It's a rainbow for someone else. But in reality, with this rainbow, that's not the case. And although Constable had probably seen rainbows arching over the cathedral like that, and it is possible to have a 40-degree rainbow, and he could have pointed all the shadows in the right direction if he'd, if he'd have done it at the same time, but obviously he was adding the rainbow afterwards. And also, the other remarkable thing is that the rainbow rests on Leadenhall, which is the house where his friend John Fisher lived in. And also, the crepuscular rays are shining onto John Fisher's house. So the big clue. <laughs> that, uh, and obviously, the, that big rainbow actually is what we've seen on the 25th of August at about 7 p.m., which is the very date that his friend John Fisher died in 1832. So the year is, is pretty irrelevant, but that's the date. We can time it at 25th of August at 7 p.m. Now, the other thing, of course, is that Constable exaggerated the size of the cathedral. The rainbow would be five times higher than the actual cathedral in reality, so he did exaggerate that. But what we're now suggesting, which is uh, turning the art world upside down, of course, is that the rainbow wasn't in the original painting when it was exhibited in 1831 the rainbow wasn't there, that he added it after his friend had died. So can we give some evidence for that? Well, one of the first things is that the critics at the time, when it was exhibited in May in the Royal Academy in 1831, here's what one of the critics said, what season of the year is meant to be depicted? From the face of the scene, the snow seems melting away. This is Constable Snow again. The lightning is glaring, not flashing through the trees, and all the winds of heaven seem hurling the clouds about in every imaginable form and confusion. And so the sky was in chaos, supposedly. No mention at all of the rainbow. None of the art critics mentioned the rainbow, and surely they would have done, because it's the most glorious piece of the actual painting. So, this is what the painting would have looked like. 
to some extent. And these are some of Constable's earlier sketches of the sky. And you can see the chaos in the sky <laughs> and so on. Uh, but in the, these early sketches don't have the, the lightning in them, obviously. But you can imagine there are two early sketches which have survived before. This, this one's got the sort of wagon in, the, in front of the cathedral, much more, more like the actual final product. As we know, Constable did these big final sketches uh, before the, the actual painting. But obviously, it's, it doesn't look anything like so exciting without the rainbow. It's nothing like as uh, fascinating. So what I was arguing is that the rainbow was added later. And what it seems is that Constable suddenly started to, to study rainbows. Now, why did he suddenly... Because his rainbows up to that time, up to 1831, had been pretty terrible. Sometimes he forgot to reverse the colours on the rainbow and, he, and all the various other things. But suddenly he painted this from his house in Hampstead. He painted this double rainbow just three months after he exhibited Salisbury Cathedral from, from the meadows. So suddenly he got interested in rainbows. And you can see this double rainbow here has got the colours reversed and it's got the secondary bow wider <coughs> than the primary bow, uh, which is also important. And it's also got this rainbow wheel these are, these are what's called crepuscular rays shining through. And you can see from his house, St. Paul's Cathedral down here, just on the horizon there. So Constable was obviously fascinated by this double rainbow, this storm over Hampstead, which created this double rainbow, which suddenly went in his mind, ha ha, I can add a rainbow to my painting to commemorate my friend's death, ha ha. Well, how would he do that? Well. Constable did know quite a bit about the science of rainbow. He started to study rainbows, and he had his, his, one of his children's tutors was actually a mathematician who would have known a little bit about rainbows too. And a rainbow cannot be seen when the sun is above 42 degrees in the sky. Constable knew that from his other writings. A noon rainbow is impossible from mid-March to mid-September. In August, the rainbow is not visible from about 8.30 a.m. until about 3.30 in the afternoon because the sun's too high in the sky. The colours of the secondary bow are reversed and there are multiple bows that we cannot see. Now, Constable wrote all about this sort of thing, so he suddenly started to study rainbows and in his English landscape scenery, he wrote a long piece about rainbows which showed that he did understand quite a bit of the science, but only just, he'd only just come across this. He was aware of the angles of the primary and secondary bows he knew the secondary bow was wider and the colours reversed. And he knew what's called the Alexander dark band between the two bows. It's all that detail in English landscape scenery. So his Hampstead double rainbow of 1831 is almost meteorologically perfect. So suddenly rainbows were in his head. Now, you can't read this, so I'll translate it for you. What, I, what we don't know, on the back of that Hampstead study, he did say it was June 1831, but he didn't say the actual day of the, of the month. So obviously I look at meteorological records, looking back to see which day of June was it likely to be. And it turns out to be the 5th of June. This is the 5th of June, when there's exciting weather over North London. You can see he got so excited, he had to wrote all these extra lines down here. Uh, now if we translate that into English, this is uh, an observer called Edwin, A. Edwin, on the 5th of June 1831 from Highgate Archway, which is quite close to Hampstead. Uh, two two o'clock, that is, a thunderstorm gathering in the northwest, two or three claps of thunder, lightning once or twice visible, 20 to 30 seconds between flashes, reporting from observations in Highgate Archway, 
Quarter past three, then the west end of this shower became rapidly over with a kind of whirlwind swirling the dust with the cloud. A very heavy shower of rain ensued and frequent short heavy showers until six and a very heavy shower and gust at six. And that's the time, six o'clock, between six and seven o'clock when the rainbow uh, was actually painted. So that ties down the actual date. Actually, we, the actual symbols you, you can't actually see, but he gives the rainbow symbol as well uh, in his uh, diary. And we can use solar geometry. Now we're finishing solar geometry for the first time. Now. We can use solar geometry from where he lived, Six Well Walk. We can actually trace. Uh, here's St. Paul's Cathedral is down here, where the centre of the bow would have been, and the primary and secondary bow is actually over Regent's Park. You know, we can detect that using uh, maps and today's. So the actual solar geometry hasn't changed. Here we are in 2018. The solar geometry is the same as it would have been in Well Walk back in those times. So we can use solar geometry to actually uh, reinvent where the rainbows uh, fall. And rather interestingly, being a cheeky sort of chap, I actually went to John Constable's house in Wellwalk to see what I could see out of the window of St. Paul's Cathedral in the directions. And I knocked on the door and the guy let me in, the owner of the house. And he said, yeah, of course you can go up and look out of the window. And uh, he left me to it actually, it was very... Uh, so this is a photograph out of the window. You can't see it very clearly here. But St. Paul's Cathedral is here. So the rainbow, the double rainbow is over here. And if you magnify that, you can, just, you can see the outline of St. Paul's Cathedral from his window there. And the shard here, <laughs> and some horrible other buildings, which I can't... This, the landscape has been totally ruined from that beautiful landscape that Constable saw. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> so in this same period, and the paper is watermarked, it's uh, 1833, 1832-34, sorry after he'd originally exhibited the painting. And Constable produced all these diagrams of uh, the light passing through raindrops and different uh, forms of rainbow and so on, and the different refraction and refraction. So this was probably with his uh, children's tutor. He uh, was working through how rainbows were formed. So this is, the, again, rain, rainbows are in Constable's mind all the time. So how would you then go about putting a rainbow onto the painting to represent his his best friend's uh, life. Well, he had a, a friend called George Field. Now, I don't know if you've come across George Field, but he was a, a famous, um, with all the artists, for creating colours and pigments, and he wrote several books on this. And he produced several, he was very much a scientist as well, and he used to produce these sort of instruments that you could actually shine light through and produce the equivalent of a rainbow onto a painting. So this is uh, a chromoscope. Which did? And he said, if you admit a beam of sun into a darkened chamber through the chromoscope, blah, 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 then a magnificent colored iris or bow will be cast upon a screen or the walls of the apartment. So you could actually create a rainbow and shine it onto a canvas so you could know exactly where to put it. And he said, the present experiment affords a method by which a rainbow of any arc may be superinduced upon a picture into which the artist may design to introduce it so as to try its effect and the best way of accomplishing it. So his friend could have helped him to put the rainbow on there, but you still got to have a piece of string and a, and a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so it wouldn't actually stick onto the painting. But we know exactly, we can go back to Salisbury, we know exactly where the, uh, the canvas would have been and we can work out the angles. And therefore it wouldn't have been difficult for Constable to work out on the day that his friend died, the 25th of August, where the rainbow would be. And so we, it's very simple geometry. And here's Leadenhall where his friend died. So we want the rainbow to sit on there and, uh, and we want it to arch over the cathedral. So it would be quite simple to actually calculate the solar geometry for that to happen. And we can do it here again using uh, modern thing. We can reproduce that. And so the rainbow appeared on the painting in 1834. So it was originally exhibited in 1831. So my theory is in 1834, Constable added the rainbow because it was previously, it was also exhibited at the British Academy uh, before it, it finally appeared in Birmingham. But the Birmingham exhibition in uh, September 1834, the two criti main critics I've found None of the art historians have found this, of course. Now, being from Birmingham, I suppose it's easier for me to actually find the old Birmingham newspapers. But I actually went into the university archives and I said, have you got any newspapers, you know, around about this time in November, uh, well, September, October, November, around about this exhibition? And they brought out the wrong newspaper. They brought out the wrong one because they said they couldn't find anything relevant. And they brought me the Birmingham Advertiser. And there was one issue for 1834 that was in there uh, that all the others were missing because it's supposed to be a weekly thing and lo and behold I was just going to send it back and I thought well I'll have a look and see what uh, what the football results were at that time no, that was, <laughs> or the price of corn or whatever it was and lo and behold I found there was a review in there so it was divine intervention suddenly uh, completely out of the blue this happened and this particular critic said, aiming at some striking effect of a summer storm, the artist has rashly ventured a rainbow, which looks as if it were built there and must ever remain. <laughs> so the first evidence that anyone has actually pointed out that it's a rainbow, and that was on November the 20th. And then another journal, the Birmingham Journal then, which I subsequently found, this magnificent picture, the finest landscape in the exhibition, the stormy sky, the rainbow, the thundercloud, and all the aerials of the picture are painted with masterly hand. So evidence for the first time that the rainbow actually existed in the painting some three years after. Now it represents August 25th, 1832 when his friend died, but he didn't actually add it to the painting until the summer of 1834, is our theory. Anyway, we can't say for sure. What is the evidence for that? Where's my evidence? Just a second. <laughs> Whoopsie daisy. I've got, that, I've got my, we'll come to it. Let's just go back a second. I was just going to also refer to the crepuscular rays. Now, this is, again, you can't see this very clearly, but crepuscular rays, Constable was one of the first ones to paint what we call anti-crepuscular rays. Now, anti-crepuscular rays are the opposite. Where you've got the sun, you've got the Jacob's ladder leading from the sun, but also you get shadows crossing to the, the other horizon, which are called anti-crepuscular rays. And these are quite rare. I, I can't ever say I've, I've seen them in, in reality, but I've seen lots of photographs of them. And these, you can see them converging on the, on the horizon here. And obviously he used this crepuscular, anti-crepuscular rays, well, probably crepuscular rays in the actual uh, painting to shine on, onto his friend's house. But the anti-crepuscular rays he used in the opening of Waterloo Bridge. He used, again, you can't see it very clearly here, but you can see anti-crepuscular rays here 
used by Constable to, to shine on the uh, magnificent occasion of opening of Waterloo, Waterloo Bridge. And so Constable was probably the first one to actually paint anti-corpuscular rays. And he's uh, way before scientists really realized that they existed. So he was very observant. So Constable's meteorological awareness was pretty, uh, pretty good. His weather notes, the function of anticlister rays, knowledge of the rainbow, increasing windiness, knowledge of the Beaufort wind scale, awareness of Luke Howard's cloud classification, and so on. Now, obviously, the other thing is the size of the cathedral in relation to the size of the rainbow. You can see here, this was a photograph taken by someone called Tim Tatton Brown, who lives near the cathedral. And you can see the huge height of the rainbow in comparison to the height of the, uh, of the cathedral. So we know he exaggerated the size of the cathedral, not surprisingly. And we had a photograph competition. So when, when the painting was exhibited in Salisbury, we actually got people to submit photographs of rainbows. And here's someone called Martin James Cook on the 1st of October 2016 at 4.30, saw this wonderful rainbow over the cathedral. And you can see again how small the cathedral is in, in comparison to the size of the rainbow. This was actually was such a nice painting that so a picture rather it was reproduced in the in the Times newspaper. And again, we can prove with our solar geometry, which I'm not going into great details, but again, it all it all lines up that the rainbow is in the right position for the right time of day, etc. So there's nothing mystical about it at all. Right. So the 1831 exhibited version of Salisbury Cathedral for the Meadows did not feature a rainbow. Constable added the rainbow sometime after his close friend John Fisher had died, and we think it was in the summer of 1834. Here we go, this is what I was looking for. I'm still here, thank goodness. On July the 29th, 1834, Constable wrote to one of his friends, I have done wonders with my great Salisbury. I have no doubt of this picture being my best now. So he's taken over from the Haywain. Yeah, has, <laughs> has been his best. The end. <laughs> <laughs>